to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. All right, you're with Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Maybe listening through satellite system in the sky via the podcast network through 3CR Digital. However you're listening, hope you're having as good a time as can be hoped for in this lockdown period. I'm um, joined in the studio today um, by Clinton Fernandez. Welcome back to the the virtual studio of 3CR. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you for having me. The honour is mine. Clinton, it was pretty amazing because after I spoke to you last week, I listened. It might surprise you. It might not surprise you to learn that I listened to a podcast put out by the uh, the National Security podcast, which comes out once a week, where they talk about different areas of Australian security. And while most of the time I don't, uh, how can I put it, I don't necessarily follow their political reasoning, but it's always good to know how they're thinking as well. But this week was um, talking to a bloke from the National Archives about uh, David Fricker, about releasing documents. Uh-huh. And and um, there, there it was, coming right in the middle of talking to you twice, the second time, to talk to you about some documents which you've managed to get released about um, Australia's involvement in the coup against against the Endo's government yes. in Chile. Uh, okay, well, David Fricker, of course, is the Director General of the National Archives of Australia. Mm. And uh, he used to be the Deputy Director General of uh, ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. I haven't heard the National Security podcast uh, that you refer to, but I'm assuming that comes out of the National Security College? Yes. At the ANU? At the ANU. Oh, well, that's important for uh, a reason I'll get into in a second. Uh, But I I tend to refer to uh, them as the National Security, not them, but the people who who come on on these shows as the National Security Chin Strokers. Right. Who are are always stroking their chins and finding ways to, 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 you know, new ways of of identifying threats to Australia. Uh, but From my perspective, it's good to know how they're thinking. Well, it, you're right. And so this is what I, I think is of value, because there are questions of historical facts, such as what do we do in Chile? And we'll get into that uh, uh, very soon, I'm assuming. But then there are also questions of cultural history. How do the cultural institutions, like the media, uh, the think tanks, these uh, chin strokers, and other commentators in the media, how do they react to what they take to be the facts. Uh, answering questions of historical fact, it requires long-term effort in the archives. Uh, it requires uh, a certain amount of effort uh, to get your history correct. But answering questions of, histor- of cultural history is much easier since the public record is wide open because yes. we, we know how the cultural institutions uh, react to what they take to be the facts. And this area of inquiry is actually much more informative uh, with regard to the implications for Australian foreign policy in the future. Uh, and it has to be said that here the conclusion is grim because all the costs and benefits are 
assessed in terms of the costs to us. Yes. And if there's no cost to us, it disappears from history. <clears throat> and um, But what do we mean by us in that context? Exactly. Uh, us are the people who are inside uh, the loop uh, the question of national security. It, the system is supposed to function well in the interests of those for whom it is designed. And if there's a cost to that, then, of course, it becomes a cost uh, within, that, within that framework. Um, now, on, on the Chile question, I, I think there is uh, no question now that the United States was heavily involved in the overthrow of Salvador Allende, but there had always been these rumors more than rumours. There was a whole book written about ten years ago. Yes, yes, but what I mean is rumours about Australia. Ah, oh, rumours. About our role. Yeah. Uh, the groundbreaking work was done by Brian Tui and Bill Pinwell in 1989 in a book called Oyster. And what they had was uh, a version of the Hope Royal Commission's reports, which uh, fell off the back of a truck, highly classified, and that allowed them to write a history of ACES, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. But it was an unofficial history, and these relied on the Hope Royal Commission's assessment as to what was going on. But the first official confirmation as to what ACES did uh, came this year during uh, our case of the National Archives, uh, mm. when we went up against the archives, who basically are kind of following, effectively, the, the wishes of the intelligence agencies. It's rare, or perhaps unheard of, for them to re- refuse to, uh, to act along the lines that the intelligence agencies say. That's what made the National Security Podcast so interesting, because David Fricker was there being the, the very pleasant, charming... I, I had to make sure it was the same David Fricker after I was listening to him that used to be head of ASIO, because he was, all he was talking about was opening and being open and transparent and the liberal democracy and the wonderful thing that is... Australian access to information. I had to, I, I had to think David Fricker, the name is not quite Clinton Fernandez or Jacob Grech for that matter. Maybe there's two of them in the bureaucracy, but no, it's the same bloke. Uh, well, uh, David Fricker was Deputy Director General of ASIO, and look, to a certain extent, if you wanted to know about your ancestors who fought in the first or second or some other war, then the National Archives is exactly the place for you because you can get your ancestors. Um, service details, you can crack the history. So when Fricker says that it's an open system, uh, he's referring to that aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to matters of high policy, the way the state and, and uh, uh, powerful sectors actually operate, then I think we're uh, far from that an- analysis. Then it becomes a matter of pulling teeth. Right. But again, with, with Chile, and we'll get into the details of it in a, in a bit, but it's my understanding that while you say there have been rumours, it's been can we can we use the term an open secret that Australia was involved? Didn't Whitlam himself mention it shortly after he lost? He lost yeah. It? <clears throat> well, look, um, in 1973 or 1974, there was a a report about intelligence agencies being involved in Chile. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where that came from was an immigration minister in the Whitlam government named Clyde Cameron. Mm-hmm. And as immigration minister, he found out that there were ASIO officers, not ACES, but Australian Security Intelligence Organization officers, people who work in the domestic area in Australia, who were masquerading as immigration officers right. in order uh, to vet 
potential immigrants from Latin America and around the world in, in Australian embassies. And Clyde Cameron protested to Whitlam about that. He thought it was inappropriate to be collecting intelligence on potential immigrants uh, and on immigrants <clears throat> in a manner that could not be collected on people who were not immigrants, who were born in Australia. Yeah. And so that's when the first hints began coming out, that there was some kind of an intelligence presence in our embassies overseas, specifically in Latin America. Now, in 1977, Malcolm Fraser disclosed in Parliament the existence of an organization called ACES. When Gough Whitlam had been opposition leader until the December 1972 election, he had not been told of the existence of ACES. Mm -hmm. uh, but he became aware of it when he became prime minister. But the official existence of ACES was never disclosed until 1977 by Malcolm Fraser. And Whitlam in that year also said that he cannot deny that uh, ACES was involved in Chile. Now, precisely what that means was never, never revealed. You see, I'd, I'd always thought that that meant intelligence gathering through our bases like Pine Gap and the Echelon system mm, mm, mm. rather than boots on the ground. Yes. Uh, but the first official confirmation uh, came about this year during the declassification uh, uh, case in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Now, the tribunal has yet to rule on this case. And so neither you nor I uh, want to be in contempt um, of the tribunal by, by judging or by speculating about um, how they may or may not rule. Uh, but we, but we, can, we, we can discuss what's been released so far. It was released in this fashion. Uh, when the request to the uh, archives was put in, in 2017, uh, there was a request, I was a requester, uh, there was a request for two types of ACES records. One was ACES records on Cambodia, and the other one was ACES records on Chile. And the reason is that the Australian ambassador to Cambodia was Noel Deschamps, D-E-S-C-H-A-M-P-S. -S. You might pronounce it Deschamps, if you don't like the French accent. Yeah. No, Noel Deschamps was our ambassador to Cambodia at a time when King uh, Sihanouk was overthrown in a constitutional coup. And he went straight from there to Santiago, Chile, and stayed until Allende was overthrown in a, in a coup, in a real coup, right. in a military coup. And so uh, even back in 1969, at the time of the overthrow of King Sihanouk, there had been uh, rumors that ACES was actually involved in the coup against Sihanouk in Cambodia because <laughs> the United States did not have an embassy there. Their embassy had been ordered shut down after the bombing of Cambodia during the, uh, the, the, the Nixon administration. <clears throat> and so Australia was representing the United States in Cambodia. And so the reason that request was put in uh, to, to ACES records on Cambodia and Chile was it was essentially the same model where uh, Australia goes in, acts as a surrogate of sorts for the United States, and the ambassador goes from one coup to the next coup. Yeah. Uh, Noel Deschamps then retired from the Foreign Service after uh, the overthrow of Allende, and he went on to lead the Australian Monarchist League. I um, think it's, it's probably worth mentioning, too, that um, before Cambodia, he was in Moscow. I see. Uh, it's, um, it's, a, it's a Cold War scenario, yes. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, the ACES's response to that, and the National Archives conveyed it, was that to even um, confirm or deny the existence of such records back in 1969, 1970, and so on, would harm Australia's security today. Right. And um, that claim was challenged. 
they don't need to say why. Uh, that's right, because uh, uh, to say why, they say, would, would actually reveal the real information. Uh, but that, that claim was challenged, and eventually the question of Chile came up uh, in the first week of June this year. Mm-hmm. And the Attorney General, Michaelia Cash, signed a certificate, which she's entitled to do under the, Nas- under the Archives Act, that excludes the applicant, in this case myself, uh, from even hearing uh, the government's reasons as to why uh, uh, these records should not be released. Uh, the government is allowed to make closed submissions, which you're never allowed to see. Only the tribunal is allowed to see it. Uh, and uh, you're supposed to make your submissions in the open. But then you get a chance to ask a few questions of the ACES people and the archives people. And so uh, when the tribunal hearing opened in June this year, it was a four or five day hearing, I think, Uh, And at the end of day one, I think it became clear that some of the extreme versions of neither confirm nor deny could not be sustained even in the closed hearings because questions would be asked, you know, how come you can't answer these these obvious questions? And so at the end of day one, at least this is how we experienced it, at the end of day one, we were handed a a big lever arch folder of about 600, 700 pages, many of them blacked out, and they turn out to have been every ACES station report from that era. They actually reveal um, the fact that ACES set up a station uh, at the behest of the CIA, that they spied on Allende and the Chilean government at the behest of the CIA, uh, and that they acted as a go-between as well to the CIA and the Pinochet coup plotters. And they they ran, I think the word is, the um, the CIA operatives who were interfering and who were collecting the information. Well, that, that information is still uh, under wraps, and so we're yeah. hoping that the administrative okay. tribunal is considering that aspect. Sorry. Uh, you know, but uh, what we know from that so f- the, the what they have released so far is the first official confirmation that, in fact, ACES was in Chile, um, that it did what I just said it did, uh, spied on, on Allende, acted as a go-between between the Pinochet forces uh, and the CIA. Uh, and we know things like uh, the safe houses they were trying to get, uh, the cars they wanted to, to buy, uh, even the safe. We, we actually know the combination of the safe that they, <laughs> <laughs> they had. One of it's still sitting around somewhere. In Indeed. Indeed. In some, in some uh, uh, disposal store in, uh, in a second-hand mm-hmm. outlet somewhere. But the point being, uh, it's no longer speculation. We now know that that's why they were involved, that, that, that they were involved. Uh, and I think it's important to understand that the same Australian government that sent troops to Vietnam to uphold American aims there, namely stopping social transformation in Southeast Asia, yes. is, the, is the same government that sent its intelligence agencies to Chile to uphold American aims there, namely stopping social transformation in Latin America. Yep. And that fundamental rationale is sometimes missed by historians of Australia's foreign relations. Because uh, historians who write only on on defense or foreign affairs, they rely on the defense and foreign affairs sections of the cabinet papers. But what they miss is the underlying rationale for strategic policy and its place in the integrated government picture. Because history is written within the policy silos Yes, they can criticize this or that government error or blunder, but they can't provide an overarching explanatory framework 
within which all these individual policies are actually quite rational. So it may look odd that we are so far away in Chile, and it may look odd that we're, you know, we're sending troops to Vietnam, but actually it's the same Australian government that's doing it. And so uh, it's doing it for the same objectives. The objectives are to uphold what we might call the rules-based international order, because that rules-based international order is a euphemism for a U.S.-led imperial system. But you can't say empire. That's taboo. No, I mean, the way I put it is they make the rules and the rest of us follow the orders. <laughs> well, the, 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 the phrase rules-based, rules-based international order is repeated ad infinitum mm. uh, by the commentariat and the national security chin strokers. But it's never explained what that is. And I think... It's been, re- fairly re- it's been a fairly recent um, introduction, this um, rules-based order three three-word phrase. I mean, yes, it's, it's in, it basically it's around the time of the Rudd government and the global financial crisis, around the 2008 period. Yeah, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a new three-word phrase, but it's the same old neo-imperialism that's always been. Well, I, I, okay, so here I want to explain what I mean by a US-led imperial system. Oh. Okay. Uh, if you're from uh, uh, the, the traditional... Uh, Russian Revolution type of Leninist thinking, uh, then I've got nothing for you because I'm not going to uh, get into uh, what Lenin might have said about imperialism more than 100 years ago. I don't prefer to genuflect before that god. And if he was alive today, he'd probably disagree with it. (laughs) Well, I mean, my point is one doesn't need to genuflect before those gods in order to understand something that's actually quite simple. So an empire is not simply where a powerful state physically occupies another society and plants its own flag and rules it directly. An empire is defined as follows. It is the effective control of other countries' political sovereignty. Mm -hmm. You don't have to occupy that country physically, like put in place your own governor general or the viceroy like the British did during the Indian, uh, during India's part of the British Empire, the British Raj. Uh, You don't have to rule it directly. But rather, you have to control their political sovereignty. That's, that's, that's the idea of an empire. Yes. Now, an, you can control other countries' political sovereignties in a number of ways. You can do it militarily by the threat of force. You can intimidate countries like Iran, for example, by telling it that you know, all options are on the table. And if you're a nuclear power like the United States, then you know what that means. Um, you can do it through intelligence operations, such as uh, uh, spying on the government of East Timor. Uh, in order to get access to its oil. Uh, that, that's the use of intelligence operations in order to control Timor's political sovereignty. That's imperialism. Of course. You, you can do it through free trade agreements uh, by protecting the intellectual property rights of uh, companies like, say, pharmaceutical corporations, which then prevent the third world countries from developing uh, vaccines because uh, the vaccines are protected by intellectual property agreements. Mm-hmm. So that's a control of their political sovereignty. Uh, you can do it through investor state dispute settlement provisions in, in investment treaties, uh, which means that, uh, you know, a, a, a corporation doesn't have to go through the local courts. It can go through a private arbitration tribunal. So an imperial system is simply a system in which one state controls the political sovereignty of a number of other countries. And in this sense, the United States sits at the apex of a hierarchically structured imperial system. It, there are junior powers like France, for example, uh, which has its own imperial system in French-speaking Africa yeah. uh, and in parts of the South, uh, parts of the Pacific as well. And there are other junior powers, imperial powers like Britain, 
which acts uh, essentially as a, I think the, the word is lieutenant or lieutenant uh, to the United States. But then there are sub-imperial powers which have their own empires, but, but that uphold uh, the imperial system uh, uh, you know, that the United States presides over. And Australia, Israel, and Singapore, for example, are classic sub-imperial powers. Uh, which have the ability to project force overseas, the ability to conduct sophisticated intelligence operations, highly educated citizenry, pro-American uh, um, public opinion, um, and, and domination of the region, or high, high levels of influence in the region, whilst intervening even outside the region in defense of that empire. And, now, and we're yeah, seeing that too with the sub-imperial powers also grouped together underneath the... Yes, Apex, like we're seeing, for example, with the Quad at the moment. Well, exactly. And so what you've got then is um, the, the sending of, of, of ACES officers to Chile to help the CIA overthrow Allende is not some boutique matter or some esoteric aspect. <clears throat> it's actually connected to the war in Vietnam, just as uh, intelligence operations today are connected to uh, the, the new Cold War with China. It's essentially the same government acting using different instruments of statecraft. There are the overt instruments of statecraft, like sending in troops, sending in aircraft, buying submarines, buying frigates and destroyers. Uh, but then there are the covert instruments of statecraft, like intelligence operations, espionage, uh, electronic surveillance, things like that. But these things should not be viewed separately. Uh, they are being ordered by the same government and governments. And, and I've got to put in at this at this point and skip us along a bit that all listeners and um, a shameless plug for you, Clinton, all listeners said, please get your hands on a copy of Island off the coast of Asia where um, Clinton outlines in chapter and verse the, the triggers behind a lot of Australian foreign policy in the 20th century. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. yeah. And then has gone on to write, I mean, was it Arena Magazine last month? Yes, I wrote a book. I wrote an article called uh, The Rules-Based Order. The rules and the idea is to basically point out that the rules-based order is a euphemism for empire. Yeah, of course. Now, let's get back to, to the Chile Papers. And, okay. Um, one thing that surprised me about, about it was Gough Whitlam saying that when he was going to, when he wanted to close the, close the operation, shut the operation down, he didn't want, he was worried that America was going to see this as a, as an insult and that he wanted to assure them that he wasn't anti-American and all this kind of paper. That's not really the image that we have of that. No. Of no. Okay. So, uh, in what he said publicly, uh, Mr. Whitlam, uh, presented it as something that he found out about when he became prime minister, which is true. He found out about it because uh, Billy McMahon, as prime minister before him, had, had agreed to the ACES operation. But then he engaged, I think Whitlam then engaged in an elaborate exercise in opinion management. Uh, he uh, made it look like uh, he shut it down as soon as he found out about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but in fact, uh, the reality is uh, he put... Um, support for U.S. great power objectives above uh, solidarity with a fellow social democrat like Salvador Allende. And it was only because of a lot of pressure inside the cabinet from people like Clyde Cameron and a few other people who realized what was going on. 
he realized that this Whitlam realized this thing could not be sustained uh, for any great period. It would, it would leak. And so he ordered it shut down. And one of the things that was happening at the time was that he'd ordered a royal commission into the use of Australia's intelligence agencies like the Hope Royal Commission. Yeah. And so he was able to use those things to, to kind of keep the lid on uh, this information leaking out. But yes, his number one priority was to ensure that the United States would not be upset. And is that, um, well, we can only conjecture, who knows what Goff was thinking, and who knows what Goff was thinking when he accepted his dismissal, for that matter. But um, is that because, I mean, I can only conjecture, that's because that he didn't want to upset the Americans because he saw that what they were doing with the Allende, they could just as easily do as him. <laughs> you're really, uh, you're, uh, once again, what you're saying is not implausible. Of course. Uh, no, it's not. I'm serious. It's not implausible at all. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the question that I have is uh, I would need more evidence to come down decisively on that. But, yeah. what's, but, but what is important is the other thing that you're alluding to, namely, how does the commentariat react to what they perceive to be the facts? And here, the commentariat has reacted by doing everything it can to say the United States had no involvement in the dismissal of Gulf Whitlam. Now, I think, I think given the, the number of insistences that that is true and should not be questioned, I think we are in the, in the presence of yet another taboo. Yeah. But, but the question of Chile, if you, if you don't mind, I think we should go into what it is the, even the Nixon administration was trying to achieve. In, and, the, few and then, minutes, in the few minutes we have left. Yes, yeah, sir. I mean, um, what Salvador Allende was trying to do was – uh, nationalize in a, in a very incremental manner, in a slow manner, uh, the copper and the telecommunications industries. Uh, because the wealth of Chile, uh, was in copper and in mining, uh, and they were owned by foreign companies. Uh, for example, Kennecott and Anaconda were the two American companies that owned Chile's, uh, uh, copper industry. Uh, now Nixon didn't care that much about copper. Yes, of course he was upset about it, but what he had an imperial sense that if this sort of thing goes on, then it'll give confidence to a number of other countries to do, and we can't have that. Yes. So it's, it's, it's in order to preserve that system, uh, namely a US-led imperial system, that Allende was overthrown and Pinochet was, uh, was brought in. And, uh, that's, that's the core point. Rather, that, that, rather than copper in and of itself, it was yes. about the maintenance of empire. Exactly. I think it's important to not be too uh, to f- fixated on economics, dollars and cents. Uh, you know, just as, um, uh, you know, you, you don't get the point of why you even have the Iraq war. If you just focus on the costs of the war, um, you know, and how, how much it's cost. No, the aim is to establish uh, a power base in the Middle East there. And the costs don't matter because they are shared across the society as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that the case of Chile and even Australia's role in that is in a similar way. Okay. Um, now, just in a, we've only got a minute or two left, Clinton, but um, a couple of things I wanted to mention. Um, back when uh, Australian Federal Police raided the um, ABC and um, Smedhurst, a Murdoch journalist's undies draw, um, I remember an article appeared in the New York Times saying that Australia had one of the most repressive or outrageous, I can't remember the exact word, they use secrecy regimes. We're the most secretive democracy in the world, yeah. The most secretive democracy in the world. Is there, Can you see any any change to that coming up? Uh, uh, that, that requires public organisation and pressure. But there's a reason for that, you know. It's not just some uh, odd feature about Australia. 
this is what it means to be a sub-imperial power. You don't want to have uh, parliament or other aspects that represent the public to be involved in the decision-making. In that sense, it's like a local council uh, being told by the chief of police of the, of the state government, we're doing an operation in your area, nobody else is to know. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, on that, we're going to have to leave it now, Clinton. Thank you for the opportunity, Jacob. That's the half hour that's been allotted to me that they still can allot to you in um, the voices like voices like ours in this uh, most secret democracy in the world. And we ought, to, we ought to be thankful for it, I guess. You've been listening to Community Radio 3CR 855. I've been Jacob Grek, as always. Clinton's been Clinton Fernandez. And um, I see that you've also... One of the media articles I read said that you'd put in uh, freedom of information for documents on Indonesia as well. Oh, oh yes, but it's a you know it's a kind of a normal research project that I'm involved it's in, so it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. Okay, we'll both leave you with that ongoing thing, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Bye. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855 AM, or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. Five million people amidst the war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday midday to 1pm, Join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Qomzmizlo. Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone, as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Listening to 3CR, and we are joined by Scott, who's a campaigner with the Bob Brown Foundation, working to campaign against a tailings dam that's being proposed for the Tarkan region in Tasmania. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Uh, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Good, good. It's it's very wet down here, so I'm, I'm pleased to be indoors. <laughs> Well, the rainforest in Tasmania can be beautiful in the in the wet. I'm I'm a Tasmanian myself, born um, and raised in Hobart, so had a little bit of time in the forest, and it's really wonderful. Sometimes in the rain, isn't it? Look, it is. It's sometimes at its best in the rain, provided you you're dry and warm, and you can um, yeah uh, go out and experience it. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's truly a beautiful place. And um, so maybe you could start by for any of our listeners who don't know what or where the Tarkine is, giving us an idea of that? Well, look, the Tarkine's an area in northwest Tasmania. Um, it makes up around half a million hectares of of area that, that has been verified as having both national heritage and world heritage values. Um, about a bit over a third of the Tarkine is, is cool temperate rainforest, and it's, in fact, the, the largest temperate rainforest left in Australia and one of the last remaining in the world. And so it, it's incredibly important for that aspect, but also uh, has huge areas of heathland and, and button grass 
um, moving out towards the coastal terrain where we have um, significant areas of Aboriginal heritage. And in fact, what the Australian Heritage Council uh, suggests is the, the largest concentrations of, of Aboriginal heritage sites in the country. And so mm. um, it has, has a whole range of values and is home to over 60 rare, threatened and endangered species. Mm, a really important place, especially for the uh, Aboriginal cultural heritage, as well as you say. Um, and so, what is what's proposed for this area? Well, look, unfortunately, we've been under a whole range of threats for a long period. Those sites on the coast have been at risk from um, four-wheel drive activity, and, and um, we've had a state government that's only just um, started making the right noises about restricting four-wheel drive access on the coastal areas, um, having having planned to reverse the decision of a previous government to reopen those areas to four-wheel drives. We've had the logging threat over many years where um, our state government logging agency is still progressing with logging these ancient rainforests, um, mostly for wood chip, in fact, mm-hmm. um, and, and seeing those areas um, permanently destroyed. The rainforests don't recover from that sort of logging. Mm-hmm. Um and we're, we're, of course, seeing the, um, the, the threat from mining companies who, who it seems every time, you know, every decade or so, when the, there's a short-term spike in the iron ore prices or the tin prices, the mining companies all line up ready to start tearing holes in those rainforest areas. Mm. And, and what we're faced with right now is a company that has a mine outside of the Tarkine um, on the southern side of the Pyman River but, but has not had any conflict with the conservation movement and um, you know, could, could have gone about its, its processes completely unhindered. Mm. Uh, but it's chosen to plan its new tailing stand on the northern side of the Pyman River inside the Tarkine rainforests, and it wants to put a 140-hectare um, toxic heavy metals tailing stand um, supported by another 145 hectares of infrastructure um, in that a beautiful rainforest area of the Tarkine and um, we find that's completely unacceptable and, and we've been out there uh, firstly for 143 days over the, um, the summer where we held out the loggers and, uh, and the, um, the mining company mm. and then police arrived and they raided the camp and they moved everybody along and, and made some arrests and, and since then uh, we, we spent the next um, two months hitting them every day where we would have people turn up on the site, lock themselves to machines or lock themselves to gates or, or prevent access to the site. And after 71 arrests and 400 people participating in those protests, we've, we've earned ourselves a, a reprieve. And wow. so for the moment, the machines are off the site, but the threat hasn't gone away. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's great effort um, from all of the activists there. Um, and it's just another example of how powerful direct action can be. Um, why do you think the uh, company has chosen to pursue this within the Tarkine? Well, I think the simple question is, is it's, it's a cheaper answer. Right. Um, tailing stands have been, I guess, the, the staple of mining projects over the 20th century, where uh, after you've removed all of the, the metals from the, the ore that's been brought to the surface, um, you're left with a sulphide deposit, which is, um, when combined with the oxygen in the air, starts to form sulfuric acid. And so they, they put these um, sulphide 
heavy metals tailings into a, a tailings dam, which, when, when covered in, in a couple of metres of water, um, reduces the speed of that, that chemical process to mm. form the sulfuric acid. And, and unfortunately, what we're left with, though, is a, a huge um, damaged landscape that's full of this toxic uh, material, which doesn't, doesn't entirely prevent the acidification. It just slows it somewhat. And so often what we're left with is long after the mine's gone, we're left with this, this ongoing process of acidification that's leaching out into the surrounding environment. Yeah. World's best practice now is to move to a, a different process which, which filter presses the, um, the tailings into a, a, a dry cake and then they combine that with concrete to refill the voids left from previous mining, the underground voids. Mm. And so this is the process that's available to them. Then, um, even if they want to go with the old dirty process, mm. there is other sites outside of the Tarkine that, that are available to them. But the simple answer is here, they've done the numbers, then it's, it's cheaper to pipe this stuff across the Pyman River and dump it into a rainforest, mm. which unfortunately our, our state government is going to give them free access to. Yeah, um, and the Tarkine is a. I think I've, people might assume that a lot of Tasmania is. Uh, I I know you know the term is thrown around by logging and mining companies. This idea of a lot of Tasmania being locked up, in in air quotes. Um, and the Tarkine is not part of the World Heritage Area, is it? It's a kind of a mixed use um, uh, forest. Is that right? Yeah, unfortunately that, that's totally true. And while there's parts of the Tarkine that have been added to various reserves under the state reserve system here, yeah. um, the majority of those reserves still allow for logging and mining. Mm. And so they're, they're reserves by name but not, not by um, function. And so our campaign has been to see this area um, put into a, a national park, um, to have the nomination made to, to see this area finally World Heritage listed as it's so you know, deeply deserved. Mm-hmm. And, and our third aim, of course, is to have this area return to Aboriginal ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, we, we do come up against that argument in the community that so much of Tasmania is locked up. And um, I guess I, I bristle whenever I hear that argument <laughs> because um, yeah. national parks aren't locked up. National parks are places where you can take your kids and your mm-hmm. grandkids. Um, what's locked up is the areas behind the logging gates and the mining gates that the public never gets to see mm. and they don't get to see the destruction that's going on to their wild and special place. So true. And um sounds like the community has really um, mobilised to respond to this threat. Um, what Now that there's a bit of a reprieve, what kind of things are you planning next and, and how might people be able to get involved? Well, look, right now we've got people camped in the middle of the area that, that would be the, the sailing stand. Right. Um, we've got a tree sit in place and we've got a ground crew on the ground conducting uh, citizen science out mm. in that area um, to make sure that the you know, values of this area are well documented and that we're not forced to rely on the on the company's um, consultants mm. um, who, who to date have been largely dismissive of any environmental values on the site. Um, We've been recording the endangered um, mark bow um, of an evening with, with sound recorders. We've been um, you know, uh, putting out fauna cameras and, and tracking Tasmanian devil populations, spotted tail quail populations, and, and doing scat surveys. Um, and this weekend we've got a, a large um, 
event where we're inviting the public to join us and, and walk back into those rainforests. We've, we've now seen the machines leave and we're calling that event the Reclaim the Rainforest um, oh, nice. walk. And so we're, we're hoping to get a, a large number of people from the public to come along and, and take part in, in taking back those rainforests that the, the company had tried to take from us. <laughs> that's great. And that's on Sunday, is that right? That's right, yeah. Uh, that all sounds really good. Um, we'll let you go in a minute, Scott, but I'm just wondering if you had anything else that you might be able to add to the um, the points that you made about um, Aboriginal ownership and um, the cultural heritage values of the site, if there's anything you can say about your uh, work with the um, Tasmanian Aboriginal community on this issue. Yeah, look, our, our partnership with the Tasmania Aboriginal community, particularly through the Tasmania Aboriginal Centre mm. and the Tasmania Aboriginal Land Council, has been really important part of our campaign. Um, this area is is of great importance to the the Aboriginal people in Tasmania, and um, our our view is that it you know, it was looked after for over forty thousand years by the Aboriginal people of this island, and um, the best, best hands to be looking after into the future are, are back with with those Aboriginal owners. And so um, our foundation and, and many of our allies have made commitments that we you know, we want to see this area return to Aboriginal ownership and um, we've partnered with the Aboriginal community over the last decade to um, progress that, that campaign. Mm. Could be a really um, important site for understanding Tasmanian Aboriginal culture um, as it as it continues and ha- as it has been in the past, and um, and lastly on that note and the idea of um, you, you said before um, reclaiming that forest space and uh, Zeb and I were talking at the top of the show about how a lot of these um, activities extractive activities happen out of sight out of mind. Um, any advice for anyone listening, perhaps um, Melbourne listeners or Victorian listeners who want to visit this part of uh, Tasmania and um, and get to know it better. Any advice for them? Look, uh, my first bit of advice is do it. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the borders reopen. Um, you, you should come down and see this amazing place. Um, for, for listeners in Melbourne, this, this is as much your rainforest as it is ours. Um, you can fly from Melbourne to the, the Burnie Airport in an hour and another hour in a hire car and you're in the middle of the beautiful rainforest. And so... Yeah, I like to say the Tarko, and it's two hours from Melbourne. Um, <laughs> it's closer to Melbourne than it is to the Hobart. Um, so, True. Um, yeah, definitely come down and see it, and see these amazing coastal areas full of Aboriginal heritage. See the rainforest and the, and the richness of the life that's existing in those. Um, but in the meantime, while you're in lockdown, there's things you can do to help. You, know, um, you can contact your local federal MP um, and your state senators and, and tell them that now, this area should be protected as a uh, World Heritage Area and you want them as your representative to be speaking in the Parliament for a, a nomination for World Heritage for the Tarkine. Yes. And, and, you know, sometimes people get a little bit intimidated by the science and the economics and, and those arguments. And at the end of the day, your local MP works for you. Um, you you just need to be telling them that as your voice in that parliament, you want them speaking um, for protection of the Tarkine. And um, you know, if enough people make those um, representations to their local members, then, then that voice will be heard in the parliament. 
Great. Thank you so much for that. It's good to feel like there's something that can be done. And I, I personally hope to be there next time I'm in Tassie. So thanks for joining us today, Scott. No worries. Thank you. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is Monday 4th of October, and we're just about to hit 7.45 AM in the studios today. You are joined by me, Fung, and Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Good morning. How are we today? Um, I'm well, thank you. Still adjusting to daylight savings. Hi. <laughs> I definitely uh, resonate with that this morning. <laughs> um, well, if you've just joined us, that was the latest report um, was from Scott Jordan talking about the Tarkine um, uh, rainforests. Um, up next, though, um, we are going to be speaking with uh, Mercedes Zanka, who is one of the organisers from um, Renegade Activists. And uh, she is joining us today uh, to speak about the AUKUS alliance between Australia, um, the UK and the US and the implications of this alliance and what it means for Australia. Um, there is an upcoming uh, panel event organised by renegade activists that's going to take place this Thursday, the 7th of October at 7pm. Welcome to Monday Breakfast, Mercedes. Hi, Fong. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Could you please start by introducing yourself a little bit and um, talk about your your um, involvement with Renegade Activists? Yeah, sure. So um, Renegade Activists is an anti-militarist peace group. Um, we have a pretty long history of anti-war campaigning um, across Australia. And so, as you said before, um, coming out of COVID, you know, sort of thinking about how we reshape the way we... Um, are, are doing activism, what can we actually do in terms of uh, building a movement in response to specifically AUKUS um, at the moment, which is the focus of the, the current campaign that we're running. Um, so we're kicking that off on Thursday with the raucous anti-AUKUS caucus, as you <laughs> mentioned, which I'll explain a little bit more about shortly. Yeah, and, and I just want to say that's an amazing name for the event. Um, ah. <laughs> super catchy. You know... I think it's good to have a have a bit of fun too, you know. Definitely, definitely. Um, well, could you please provide us with a brief summary of the AUKUS agreement? I'm sure a lot of our listeners um, have heard of it and have read up on it, but it'd be nice just to get a little refresher. Yeah, definitely. So on the 16th of September, um, you know, the more it was at seven in the morning. So um, I think it was a, about 11 o'clock the previous night they'd announced that there was a an announcement of international significance. So you can imagine all of us kind of our hearts were racing, we're all calling each other, going, oh, what's going on? Um, but, yeah, on, the, on that morning of the 16th, Scott Morrison, Joe Biden and Boris Johnson announced um, a new trilateral security partnership. So that's between Australia, the US and the UK. Mm. And they describe it as a forever partnership, and that's a direct quote. Um, and it's to promote, you know, deeper information and tech sharing 
um, and also a much deeper integration of security and defence, science um, and capabilities, tech, industry and supply chains as well. So, you know, it kind of captures potential for mining in that as well. And so, of course, the first initiative of AUKUS um, is the procurement of nuclear-powered submarines and everything that comes alongside that. So um, could you tell us a bit more about Australia's role in this um, trilateral partnership uh, and, and maybe what the implications are for the country? Yeah, so, so we can definitely see this agreement in the context of increasing hostilities between the US and China. Um, obviously, Australia is a long-time uh, US ally. Um, so this tension... Um, comes from territorial expansion, defence capabilities and economic power. And if your listeners, you know, Clinton and Jacob were discussing a lot of this earlier as well in the show. Mm -hmm. Um, So China's already stated that the submarine deal makes Australia a nuclear target, which is pretty concerning, obviously. Um, But also the procurement of the subs calls into question Australia's commitment to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty um, and also non-proliferation norms generally, mm. um, which has definitely uh, been something that's been talked about. It also entrenches our involvement in the military-industrial complex as a sub-imperial power in the Indo-Pacific region. Speaking of which, what has been the response from countries in, in that region? Um, you know, you've mentioned China before, but what have other, other neighbouring countries um, been saying in response to this latest agreement? Yeah, so it's been pretty varied. Um, so states that are allies of the US or Australia, you know, have been and will be pretty supportive because mm-hmm. I suppose in their eyes it's seen to strengthen their standing in the region. Yeah. Um, New Zealand has said that the submarines aren't to be used in their waters, but Jacinda Ardern hasn't opposed the project generally, um, the initiative rather. Um, it definitely enforces, uh, entrenches Australia as a dominant force as well. So um, realigning with allies like Singapore and New Zealand. But because of, as I said before, the the risks associated with non-proliferation norms, there is a potential to divide nations who have signed up to that treaty. Mm. Um, And also, France is a part of the Indo-Pacific region, and obviously with the cancellation of the sub-deal with France, it potentially um, could impact... There's still an ally, but it's definitely soured the relationships and its impact trade agreements. So, you know, in France have a pretty strong um, policy about what they want the Indo-Pacific region to look like going going ahead. Yeah, just on that, could you tell us a bit more about, um, you know, where relations are at between Australia and France, given that the um, submarine deal with them fell through? Yeah, so, um, look, they're, they're not... Not happy, mm. to, to put it in a very, very simple term. Um, you know, that the the deal was pulled, it seems, with no no um, prior warning, even though, you know, obviously we've seen kind of these project, this project kind of go be above and beyond budget um, and that France have, uh, you know, there's kind of just been... Uh, barriers along the way, mm. um, but then sort of without without much warning, Australia seemed to pull pull the deal. So not only does that include what's already Australia's already spent, but it's also I think they'll be pushing also for the to get them compensation for the breaking of the contract. Um, so 
you know, Australia was recently entering negotiations about free trade agreements in the EU. So whether, um, I'm, I'm not sure what the impacts of that are with France, but, you know, they, they withdrew the envoy, the ambassadors from Australia and the US, which is, you know, can be seen as a pretty big, uh, big deal in terms mm. of when you look at historically when that when that has happened in the past. Definitely. Um, and like you were um, explaining to us before, this new agreement does cause a lot of concern for multiple reasons. Um, so it's great to see that there is, um, you know, uh, there is some organising that's being done um, to campaign against this. Could you tell us about the upcoming anti-AUKUS raucous caucus um what will be on the agenda for this thursday and who will be speaking at this event yeah so um the raucous anti-orcus caucus has two aims um so we'll be hearing from some great speakers who will provide information on the various aspects of the orcus agreement between the respective governments so what it means why it's happened and what are the, what are the implications and, and also it's we also really want to build a campaign and a strategy in order to counter it. Um, so it's a participatory event with a webinar um, and then uh, everybody to get involved with the intention to discuss actions we can take to build the anti-war movement and particularly our response to AUKUS. Mm. Um, so the speakers, we've got, we've got Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Dimity Hawkins, Clinton Fernandez, uh, Felicity Ruby, Jacob Gregg, Tale Mangione and Dave Sweeney, who... Uh, you know, as we've said, are some really great voices of dissent on on what this means for Australia. And um, you were saying that you know it's a participatory event, so um, people are encouraged to attend and I guess start discussions on how on how we can organise ourselves and and campaign against these AUKUS alliance. Um, what can we do? Uh, to get involved in the campaign, um, you know, aside from attending this upcoming event, sometimes with these big uh, decisions that are being made on a on a political global scale, it seems like, you know, there's very little that we can do. Um, but have you got any ideas for our listeners today? Yeah, definitely. You know, if people are are intending on coming on on Thursday, you know, come with ideas, but also. Um, I always find kind of the best ways to find what part concerns you most um, and then really sort of learn about that as much as you can and fo focus on it if you want to kind of learn more and, you know, join with other activists who might um, share the same concerns as you. It's sort of, I find that as a bit of a way to counter the overwhelming feeling of feeling like you have to know everything and mm -hmm. it, that makes it so big, you know, just um, and to try and think about... Uh, yeah, what, what concerns you about this project? You know, the, as, as we said, the, the subs are just the first initiative. So there's going to be follow-on initiatives potentially, you know, in terms of mining, in terms of, you know, nuclear waste, um, environmental issues. Um, and, and yeah, just and talk about it and discuss. But, yeah, definitely come along on Thursday and sort of air, maybe air some of your concerns and some ideas. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, just one last question before we wrap up. We've you've given us a, a really great, um, I guess, introduction to the AUKUS agreement and what the implications are for for Australia. Is there anything else that you wanted our listeners to know um, with regards to this latest pact? 
Um, in, well, probably not in particular, but definitely, you know, um, there's, there's a lot to know. And as at the moment, there's a lot of, there's a real lack of transparency around it, mm. um, which is sort of, which makes it kind of difficult in order to actually understand or be able to see what it is and what it means. Um, but we definitely have, you know, um, check out Renegade Activist Socials because we'll be putting articles up. Um, we've also got our website at renegadeactivist.org that has some, has some more information on there as well. Um, and you know, some of our great speakers have been putting articles out. So um, Clinton Fernandez in particular has some articles out. And, yeah, just get to doing some reading at the moment, you know, um, and to try and, you know, see if we can figure out what it means. Yeah, that sounds like a great way to get started and get involved. Like you said, um, looks like it's not just going to be about the, the nuclear submarines, but so much more. The scope is, well, we don't actually know yet um, uh, what it's going to cover. Like you said, there's a lack of transparency and, and the fact that it's been quoted as being a forever pact or forever alliance is, is um, yeah, says a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, I- Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mercedes, for joining us, and we'll put a link to um, the website um, in our show notes later this morning. But thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. So that was uh, Mercedes Anker there, one of the organisers of the upcoming uh, Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus that takes place this Thursday at 7pm. Mercedes is also a fellow 3CR programmer for Uprise Radio and uh, you can catch her on Wednesdays at 5.30. Uprise Radio is a radical current affairs program providing a critical analysis um, of a topic in the news cycle that deserves a closer inspection. Well, we will be back right after this. Australia has joined together with their imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The AUKUS Anti-AUKUS Caucus is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panellists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Tyle Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Grech and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activists on all the socials. A 3CR supporter. Good morning, everyone. You're on 3CR Monday Breakfast, joined by Jacob and Fung. Um... And we've just heard from Mercedes Zunker about the raucous anti-orcus caucus. And now we're going to go to a song. So this one's a bit of a classic. Hope you enjoy.
hold me down. Trust them, trust me. Then she pulled in my stitches one by one. Moved in my insides, clicking her tongue. And said, this will all have to come undone. Although my old self was hard to find You can bathe me in your finest wine But I'll never give you mine Cause I'm a little bit tired of fearing That I'll be the bad fruit nobody buys Tell me, did you think we'd all dream the same? And doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that hit too close to home? Doesn't that make you shiver The way things could have gone? And doesn't it feel peculiar? was Scar by Missy Higgins, bringing you into your Monday morning. Welcome everyone who's just joined us. The time is two past eight and you're on 3CR. So up next, we're going to be chatting about a new report that was just released by Comms Declare and Clean Creatives called The F-List, and it details 90 advertising, marketing and PR agencies that have hampered efforts to cut greenhouse gas emissions and it details ways that they have influenced climate policy. And this comes at a crucial time when our government is, as we know, stagnating on a lot of things climate, with the Prime Minister Scott Morrison unsure if he will attend the UN Glasgow Summit in November. Uh, so joining us now is Belinda Noble, who is the CEO of Comms Declare, and Duncan Measle, who is the Director of Clean Creatives. Welcome to you both. So this report, the F-List, it details 90 advertising, marketing and PR agencies that are hampering efforts to cut greenhouse gas emissions. And it singles out 90. Can you tell us about who were some of the main culprits? Yeah, well, it's interesting because what we discovered was that a lot of ad agencies are actually controlled by just a handful of multinational corporations. Um, and those are ones that, you know, most people would never have heard of, um, WPP, Omnicom, uh, Publicis and Interpublic are, are a few of them. Um, so when we went up the chain and saw who owned who, 
Um, we found that WPP um, has the most agencies in Australia, um, and, and dozens, and eight of those uh, have fossil fuel clients. Um, however, WPP, the holding company, has promised to cut its um, carbon emissions to zero by 2025, which is just in four years. Um, so that's pretty amazing um, when you consider that they have all these um, fossil fuel clients. Right, so WPP is an advertising agency, right? And they've, so they've promised to, to cut their emissions, but they're actually supporting fossil fuel companies. Yeah, and the emissions of their fossil fuel, com- of the fossil fuel clients, are, you know, many, many hundreds of times larger than their own um, emissions as, um, as an ad company, you know. Um, mm. so their, their, um, their um, goal, their target is, is, is quite meaningless and, and obviously greenwashing. You can't just pretend that, you know, your clients aren't part of, of your emissions. Um, in Australia, um, we found it's actually the gas industry that employs the most agencies, um, especially lobbyists or public affairs companies that handle reputational issues as well as ad agencies. So Santos, which is um, the big gas producer, one of the biggest gas producers, has at least six agencies that we could find. And the lobby group for um, the petroleum um, uh, industry called APIA, or the Australian Petroleum Production Exploration Association, um, has five agencies, and AMPOL um, also has five. Interesting. So when you bring into context, you know, the gas-fired recovery and the, you know, amazing um, influence that the gas industry apparently has um, over federal policy at the moment, then um, it all um, becomes quite um, interesting that they have that, that many agencies. Mm, the, the curtain is dropped, it seems. Um, and in the report, something that interested me was a case study on ExxonMobil spending millions of dollars on Facebook ads to oppose pro-climate action in America, is that something that's that's common for fossil fuel companies to use social media to, I guess, win people over on the side of fossil fuels? Oh, a hundred percent. So ExxonMobil, uh, I think, is the biggest um, uh, buyer of Facebook ads um, in America. Um, so their, their total ad spend um, would be in the millions millions of dollars. Um, and thanks to um, the Facebook library, we now can track how many ads that they're doing. Um, and, and what they do is they, they either through their own name or through other front groups, um, companies will um, uh, fight against regulation. So, you know, sometimes it's under their own name, sometimes it might be under a community-sounding name, and it's called astroturfing. Um, and they'll talk about the sort of um, the, the social costs of um, of the of the proposed laws, they'll talk about jobs, um, all those sorts of things. They just sort of very subtly um, uh, lobby against um, any um, any law changes that would affect their operations. Hmm. Um, and uh, we um, and what we found, um, or what what Duncan found, was that um, uh, the PR giant Edelman, just the biggest PR company in the world. Um, also had a role in, in managing that campaign um, um, by using a sort of a, um, a safe links URL. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that just shows um, that uh, the, the PR companies and the ad agencies are very much um, up to their necks in this kind of activity. 
of course. And and what are some of the risks of um, spreading all of this, I guess, uh, pro-fossil fuel propaganda? Yeah, well, what we've seen, like, historically, obviously, is that um, the fossil fuel industry has, um, you know, first manufactured climate denial, and now they're manufacturing climate delay. So, you know, they've very successfully um, fought um, actions to cut greenhouse gas emissions um, pretty much from the, the 70s onwards. They knew that their products were causing global warming or a main cause of global warming, um, and yet they manufactured um, this kind of denial, um, you know, predominantly in the States but also in Australia, um, by questioning the science. Um, now what they're doing is saying, yes, we agree with the science, um, we, we believe global warming is a thing, but, um, you know, we're going to reach net zero by 2050, so trust us not to do anything wrong. Um, and a lot of these net zero promises um, are meaningless because they're also expanding coal and, um, and gas and oil at the same time. Um, so they're just delaying action while protecting their profits. Mm, absolutely, and I think that reflects a lot of what's going on in federal parliament uh, where Scott Morrison was was a very uh, out, well, outwardly supporter of coal, and um, I loved what you said in the media release about how Australia has lost three prime ministers because of climate policy. And I think right now they are trying to debate um, if net zero is going to be the ambition, and if so, when. Um, so, what do you think are some of um, you mentioned touched on it a bit before, but what do you think are some of the other common misconceptions around this idea of, of net zero 2050? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of net zero by 2050. Um, what we're seeing is these net zero pledges being taken on face value and it allows bad faith players to pretend that they're taking action while they're actually doing quite the opposite. Um, so people need to look beyond these pledges to see what actions are actually being taken. Um, the International Energy Agency um, said that there can be no new fossil fuel projects if we're to reach net zero by 2050, and yet Australia is planning a massive expansion of gas and new coal mines. Um, so net zero as a pledge is completely meaningless if it doesn't include a commitment to at least half emissions by the end of this decade, and that means cuts of around 6% a year, and, and that's what we should be looking for um, you know, um, if, if Scott Morrison does say we want 2050 uh, net zero, um, well, he, he can't be expanding coal and gas and, you know, reductions of around 6% a year is what we need to be aiming for. Mm, 100%. I think that's a, a great message to take out of this is that we can't be opening up uh, new coal mines and new gas fields. We actually do need to be consistently um, and frequently cutting our emissions and I think this report highlights a really stark picture, particularly around how lobbyists are influencing the government's climate policy, um, not only in Australia, but I'm sure in, in just about every other country in the world. Do you have any thoughts moving forwards about how we can combat the influence of lobbyists? Yeah, well, they've got the deepest pockets um, and, um, you know, the most cash, so you know, pretty much they outgun everyone on, on lobbying um, the, the coal and gas companies, um, as well as the resources um, industry um, more broadly. But, um, look, I, I mean, things like caps on donations to political parties would be an awfully good start. Um, fossil fuel companies are the biggest donors to political parties, Liberal and Labor. Um, 
transparency at the federal level um, so we can see how many meetings um, lobbyists are having with politicians and staffers would be terrific. Some states do that, but the federal government doesn't, so we don't even know how many meetings they're having or who is. And um, also stronger rules to stop politicians moving straight from Parliament to lucrative fossil fuel jobs. We've seen that in a number of cases. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it just stands to reason if you're a politician and you, you've got an option to approve a coal mine or something and you know that if you're good to this company, you know, you're in with a chance of getting a nice quarter of a million um, a dollar job, uh, you know, at the end mm. of your term of... of of a parliament, um, you know, that you, you're going to um, perhaps do what's right for the company, not the not the population. So I think that would be another good thing to start. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with you there, Belinda. Do you have any more uh, final thoughts you want to share around the, the F-List report or just climate policy in general? Well, thanks, yeah. I, I, um, I guess it's just for consumers to be aware um, of what they're being sold um, and to, to look at it critically. Um, you know, a, a lot of, um, of the energy retailers, for example, um, people have quite uh, good perceptions of them. AGL, as an example, um, people think AGL is a, is a gas company. Um, they have positive associations with AGL. But, of course, um, 80% of AGL's business is actually coal. Um, so we just need to look beyond um, the nice ads um, beyond the greenwashing and uh, just see what these companies are actually doing in their day-to-day operations. Absolutely. Well, Belinda, it's been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much for, for sharing your insight into the F-List. Thanks so much for having us. Sorry about the uh, technical issues. <laughs> Not a problem. Um, so if you liked hearing about the F-List, Comms Declare is also conducting a survey of people under 30 who work or study in communications, and that includes media as well. And if you complete the survey, you could win a $500 gift voucher. Um, so you can head to www.comsdeclare.org um, for more on that. And you're on 3CR. We will be right back after this community service announcement. Australia has joined together with their imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The AUKUS Anti-AUKUS Caucus is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panellists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Kyle Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Grech and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activists on all the socials. A 3CR supporter. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter.
Welcome back to 3CR. You're joined by Jacob. And Fung. And we just heard from the lovely Belinda Noble, who is the CEO of Coms Declare, which is an organization that's aiming to encourage PR, advertising, and marketing agencies to essentially not support the fossil fuel industry. Um, and they're also doing a lot of work around combating greenwashing and climate misinformation. Such an interesting um, issue there. I, I like what Belinda was saying, that like I feel like for myself, you know, I don't actually know um, whether the companies that I'm supporting are also supporting the use of fossil fuels. So mm. um, it'll be good to do my own research in this. Yeah, it's, it's certainly good to, to be aware of that sort of thing. And I think as well, even just having a look at your bank and your super and seeing what they're investing in is so important too, because there's, there's so many little things that we can do that all add up to make a big difference. Definitely. Um, well, just looking to the news, um, thought we could finish off today's, um, radio show with just a few headlines. Sure. Um, so do you remember the earthquake that we had maybe a couple of weeks ago? Yes. Yes, I, I very much do. <laughs> yeah, I think we, I don't know if we talked about it, but um, it's been uh, reported that buildings in Melbourne, uh, particularly structures with masonry and reinforced concrete, may be vulnerable to significant damage, even with low seismic activity, according to scientists who uh, assess the impacts of the tremor that we felt a couple of weeks ago. So hmm. um, I know, you know, I think we were quite lucky in that there was um, no one was hurt after after that earthquake and, and there was some damage, but um, in comparison to what we've seen in, in other parts of the world, very little. Um, so so this report is, is interesting um, in that, yeah, a lot of the buildings in this city are... Um, can be significantly damaged even with small tremors. Wow. So do you, I think, um, do you think we should be sort of rethinking the way that we, we build our buildings now that we've just experienced the force of Mother Nature? Uh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I definitely, I definitely think that. Um, I mean, uh, you know, we don't really have that many earthquakes in this city. So, mm. um, I mean, for me personally, I haven't had to think about it at all. So now that it's at the forefront of everyone's minds, I think um, the way in which we, yeah, construct buildings, um, design them, we'll have to take into account from now on tremors. Um, wow. Yeah. This is this is new for Australia, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, and, well, um, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to share another piece of news from the week. Um, which is that Gladys Berejiklian, as we know, has resigned yeah. as New South right. Wales Premier um, due to a state ICAC corruption investigation. Yes, um, and I think there are currently talks happening um, uh, with regards to, to who is going to take over. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts to share on, on who you would like to, to take <laughs> the lead, take the, the um, reins in New South Wales? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this is this is 3CR, so I don't think we're all um, 
too keen of <laughs> supporting um, the government there. But, you know, I think it was refreshing personally to see a a liberal um, minister step down for corruption. So well done for doing the, the bare minimum. Yeah, and I think just generally, like, you know, politicians being held to account <laughs> for... Mm. For, yeah, issues like corruption, um, I think, you know, in the last few years especially, we've seen a lot of things happen within Parliament, but not much action being taken, so... Couldn't agree more. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to listen back to any of the segments today, you can go to the 3CR website. We'll have the podcast and show notes up later today. Um, tune in uh, to um, Women on the Line up next and also Breakfast Again tomorrow. I'm Fung. I'm Jacob. And have a great day. Three CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.